My podcast is going to be a little bit different today. First of all, it's a long one, so you'll either need an extra big cuppa or you'll need to maybe do two sit-ins. Um, it's a very important listen, and I'm fully aware that we all have our own lives, our own problems, our ups, our downs, but sometimes it's important to zoom in and get one of those perspectives in full. You know, really get inside the mind and explore every part of the story. Try to see and feel things from a different viewpoint and learn about the successes or failures in our society that can have amazingly beautiful or devastating effects. I found this episode difficult to hear and be part of, yet important. Uh, Remember, if you would like to get in touch, then you can reach me on Twitter at RichardSefton3. It's at RichardSefton3 or 116123 is the Samaritans. On the couch with me today, virtually, obviously, is a campaigner, an equality activist, and not only a hero of the LGBTQ plus community, but a personal hero of mine. All I've ever known this man to do is love deeply and fight hard. I'm not going to say too much more because I want you to hear his story. I want you to hear it from his mouth. So without further ado, Mark Ward, I am so chuffed to have you sprawled out on my couch. How are you? I'm not too bad, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, what what are you looking at? What's out your window at the minute? Uh, the window I'm looking out is at the front of the house, so it's looking out of the close. Uh, I can't see the sea from here, but I'm down in Brighton, mm. uh, so but I can see lots of trees, which is I, nice. Yeah, well, I could hear the seagulls before, so it, it took me there, so thank you. <laughs> I've been to the beach today in my head. I think they're jumping around on the roof. <laughs> it's always a good thing. How good is your memory? Can you remember being a young child? Yes, yes. Are you okay to talk about your childhood? Take me back there. Yes, of course. Yeah, I, I, a trip down memory lane. I think mm. uh, it, it it it's quite good for people to hear some of the things and a different different view of life. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So yes, do ask away. I mean, uh, what was life like as a child? You are a hemophiliac. That's right. Yes. And so what's life like as a child growing up with that condition? Uh, well, for, for people who aren't sure, haemophilia is a, a bleeding disorder. So basically, if I cut myself or I bang myself, the bruising internally doesn't stop or the bleeding in the cut doesn't stop. So mm. it's it's my, my blood doesn't clot, uh, which... Some people might think that, oh, if you get a paper cut, you know, blood spurts everywhere. But no, it doesn't. It just, it it bleeds normally, but it just doesn't stop. It just will keep bleeding until there's no more blood to come out. Um, so as if, as you can imagine, being born with it as a, as a severe haemophiliac, which is what I I am, which means I've got zero clotting agency. My, uh, my, my blood body just doesn't make it. So uh, as a baby crawling... You you get bleeds in your wrists and and your knees, which is is bruising. Mm. Um, and at first, uh, I mean, my, speaking to my mum, the first major bleed I had was she went to change me, and there was a, a massive bleed all across my rib cage, mm. uh, this huge bruise. Um, and when she took me to the local hospital, the first thing they thought was my mum had, had basically abused me. You know, a it caused the bruising and it turns out that no it wasn't I had obviously lent out of the side of my pram and the pressure on the ribs and and bleeding on the side of the pram had triggered this internal bleeding and that's what haemophilia looks like it's just these massive bruises 
um, that just get bigger unless they're treated. Um, so uh, really for, uh, from, from the very outset when the bruises started, um, the local hospital, after, after this incident, they did a number of tests and they, they actually uh, misdiagnosed me twice because they, they uh, diagnosed me first of all with a, a, another bleeding disorder called Christmas disease. Uh, then they changed their minds to von Willebrand's disease which uh, wow. uh, is similar to haemophilia. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't until my third birthday that I was taken to Great Ormond Street Hospital and I was diagnosed there with severe haemophilia. So from that moment on, my life radically changed because my parents live in Hertfordshire. Yeah. And uh, each time I got a bleed, which would be, as you can imagine, a little boy, uh, a toddler, um, it meant basically having to uh, call an ambulance we had a special number that went straight to ambulance control. So mum would phone, say, Mark needs, a, Mark needs treatment. They would ask what it was. Um, and then they would, uh, what the bleed was, or if it was, if it was something, you know, say a, a head bleed, which mm -hmm. is, is can be fatal. That's life threatening for a haemophiliac. Um, then they would send up an ambulance on blues and twos. But if it was, say an ankle bleed they would send the ambulance up within half an hour and then be taken to London um but it, it uh yeah there, there's there's lots of memories of that because uh the, all of the roads have changed so where it would take nearly sort of an hour and a half two hours to get from my parents to London now it's only about a 40 minute journey um but do you remember uh, fear do you remember fear or did it or did it become normality the, the the no there was fear because um most haemophiliacs tend to have uh target areas so say we, we're not we back then because the treatment uh which i'll get on to uh because we had it when we had a bleed um they would say to they told our parents that there were things that we weren't allowed to do so riding a, a bike playing football climbing trees all of the things that, if you think back to your childhood, that you wouldn't think twice about doing, I was told I couldn't do. So sitting sitting on the settee, reading a book or watching the television was better for me than going out playing football. But unfortunately, my target area at that point in time was I suffered from nosebleeds. Mm. And they were horrific. And, and yes, I mean, I, I've... I can sit here and say that I've virtually bled to death on a number of occasions and laying in the back of an ambulance with blood, I'm literally drowning in my own blood. It was running in my eyes, my ears. My mum couldn't, couldn't get enough cloths to soak up the blood quick enough and see the fear in her eyes, basically doing everything that she possibly could to stop her baby from dying there in front of her that that like that will stay with me forever because i could see her panic and mm -hmm. as i'm fighting to live and it, it is true actually when you see in the movies when that you know they do the clip where you're going down the corridor and the sort of the light goes and comes that's how it was as you're going in and out of consciousness and i could feel myself going cold and the the noise around you becomes a little bit distant and there was all these people and lots of activity around me but you're very calm and still in the middle of it 
Um, and you remember and the, that from, from what sort of ages? I think that was about six, seven years old. Uh, but I mean, in, uh, what they would then do as, as toddlers, it, if you went in, the, the treatment they gave you was a very slow process. So they would take you up onto a ward and you'd have this, this big needle in your arm that was connected to a very old wind-up machine. Mm. Um, and they would tie you to the cot side so you couldn't touch the needles or, or anything. So it, they couldn't do it now because it would be, I think it would be classified as torture. But you would, you'd have your arm, <laughs> these old wooden splints that were bandaged up. So if you moved, you got a splinter. If you moved, the needle hurt you. And then you were tied to the cot. Um but that image is just heartbreaking. It, yeah, it, it, you couldn't you couldn't move. You know, if, if your pillar slipped, you would you would actually lay there. And this machine, we referred to it as the clock because, like I say, it was wound up, and they would put the syringe in the top, and as the clock then would wind down, it would slowly administer this the treatment. So the syringe it would push the the treatment into you, but of course because it was a clock, it ticked. So you laid there hour after hour just listening to this tick, 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 tick. And that's, it was almost measuring your life. But you didn't see it as that way. As that way. It, obviously, at that age, it was just all you, all I can remember is just this constant tick, tick, tick. Um, and then, obviously, because when you've lost that much blood, I mean, on, on a couple of occasions, I lost, I lost three quarters of my lifeblood. So it was close Ooh. to death. And... It's yeah. I mean, I, I was critically ill on, on one occasion. It was it was almost the end. Um, so you're so weak that obviously you, you. I was more unconscious than I was conscious uh, mm. uh, on on occasions. But then, as you recovered from that, you it, uh, this was in Great Ormond Street Hospital in London, as I said, and you're surrounded then on the ward by other children and at that point in time Great Ormond Street was the world famous Great Ormond Street where mm -hmm. um, children would be flown in from all over the world uh, for those that could afford it so you might be for those that could get out of bed they would have in the middle of the room um, paintings and things uh, you did you did painting and so you could be painting I, I don't know with a little boy or a girl from Japan or, or wherever they may be from um, who were also very, very ill. So right from the word go, um, mortality and, and death was very visible. You, today you were doing a jigsaw or a painting with those group of children. Tomorrow when you woke up, one of them was gone. Oh, fuck. And it, it, yes, it, 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 as a child, you don't, you don't fully understand. Mm -hmm. They just disappeared. Um, yeah. It's as as you got older, then you realised what was happening, and um, together the jigsaw sort of thing. Yes, yeah. As so if you're sitting there in a small little group, and there's there's eight of you, and then tomorrow that little that little boy from Japan has disappeared. Mm -hmm. You didn't watch him leave the ward, walk out. It, he disappeared overnight, and it was almost like you sort of knew, but didn't say anything. Yeah. So the the bond between you and your mum. I would imagine was very tight. Oh, it still is today. My, uh, yeah, I uh, I think most most people idolise their mum, but mm -hmm. um, for my for my mum, it was it was 
yeah, the things that she went through, it was above and beyond because um, as I as I got a little bit older, they, they taught mum how to do my injections mm. because, you see, the treatment, uh, the treatment, the only way it could be given was through inter- intravenous injection. My mum had a phobia of needles. Show my mum a needle and she'd pass out. But really? her love, her love for, for me was so strong mm-hmm. that she had, she had to overcome her fear just to stop my pain by uh, and, and being able to do these injections it, it yeah it made it made the the bond there definitely so much stronger and because we had to uh, we had to communicate mm-hmm. so it, it imagine sort of as a five six year old little boy in the middle of the night when you've got a bleed and you're in pain i'd have to go into my mum and dad's room and say mum I've got a bleed. She would say where, I would tell her. And, you know, two o'clock in the morning, she'd get out of bed, phone the ambulance and sort of half past three in the morning, we were at Great Ormond Street Hospital and by four o'clock, I've had the, uh, I'm having the treatment and by six o'clock, hopefully we were on our way home again. And How did that work with school then? I, I spent more so. time in, I, I spent more time in hospital than I did school. So school... School itself was even a, a huge battle, really, Richard, because um, up until up until me, uh, all uh, people with disabilities went to special schools, mm-hmm. uh, and haemophiliacs especially. And where my parents live, it just purely by luck, the road next to them. Uh, they had an infant school at one end of the playing field and a junior school at the other end. And my mum could leave our front door or their front door um, and be in the school within two minutes. And when they wanted me to go to a special school, mum and dad said no. They wanted me to to go to a normal school. Uh, They wanted to be close by. Um, And, uh, well, a bit of a bit of a battle pursued because the, the authorities weren't going to do that and mum and dad said no <laughs> he's not going to a special school so you need to sort it out um, and they did uh, in you know fairness to them they they employed somebody called a special welfare helper hmm. who basically sat within six feet of me wherever I was <laughs> mm-hmm. so in, in infant school uh, I wasn't allowed to do uh, any sports or activities or things like that, I had to stand and hold her hand and just watch the others. She, uh, and as I say, she she couldn't be any further than six feet away from me at the beginning. And then uh, within sort of a year or so, she backed off a little bit and I was allowed to do some things. Uh, and then when I transferred up to um, the junior school, she came with me um, and then t- she left and another one took over. And that that gradually they 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 um as i progressed through junior school they they pulled the the distance back yeah. so to the point where when i was uh, about 11 uh the special welfare helper was actually in the school um and if needed somebody would go and get her but she wasn't in in 6 feet away from me anymore mm-hmm. did it did that impede on your friendships um because of going into the infant school, the the kids there were told that 
there was this special little boy coming in and you can't hit him or touch him because if you do, he bleeds. And some of the kids have got it into their brains that if you poked me, I would explode. <laughs> um, which you've got to love kids for, aren't you? They're, they're yeah. fabulous. Um, and so because I, because I went with those same children all the way, or most of them, all the way through schooling, they knew that I was different and um you're always you're always going to get conflict with kids and and different personalities and everything but no there was a there was a a group of friends that I I had who to them I was just me because that that's that they'd only seen me as me yeah. um they knew I was different and yeah I was I, I always said that I was the school freak because I was treated so differently. And it, Is it, it, in, a, in an endearing, like you, you said that as a um, uh, as a negative to, to, to yourself, you felt like a freak or you used that as a sort of like a superhero. Uh, I'm the freak of the school sort of. I like. No, 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 I, it, it, no the, 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 the joker at the party, the, yeah, the okay. odd one, the odd one out. Yeah. When I say freak, I, I mean freak as in, in the sense that yes, I was so different because mm -hmm. was, like I just said to you, I, I would be sitting in class writing and all of a sudden a drop of blood would drip onto oh. me, my book and it'd be like, right, nosebleed. And by the time you've then started to, I would shout out to the teacher. Or, or whoever I was sitting next to, you know, tell the teacher. Um, I I never went anywhere without cloths or handkerchiefs and things like that. So it would be immediately, I'd sit with a, a hanky between my legs. So immediately the hanky goes up to the nose, stand up and start heading for the door. And the teacher then would take me and um, I might disappear then for a week because that nosebleed in the back of an ambulance has turned to life-threatening and within within a few hours I'm connected to drips and like I say having this treatment in London so really uh, I never I never actually liked school because I learned more and did more um, outside school than I did in I, I yeah. saw school as a hindrance really because it was uh, I didn't feel a connection mm. I, I, I because I was so different um, I mean, f for instance, I would be sitting in in a hospital bed and I would be reading medical books and journals. I could tell you at the age of six the names, the, uh, the different parts of the heart and different parts of the body. Um, how that was going to help me in the future, I don't know. But <laughs> you know, it, I, I, it was a yeah, it was a completely different education that I was getting. It was it was real life. Yeah. Um, not what they were being taught in, in well, the classroom. Yeah, you say real life. Yeah, you, you had a, a massive knowledge of, of your own mortality and things that are in films, but not real life to most kids. Uh, you know, you, you had so much responsibility for your own life and over your own life f for somebody of that age. Yeah. Wow. And so they so the, 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 the people that you had, the specialist people that you had in school, they started backing off in junior school. So then what about sort of high school, your teen years? Yeah, when, I, when I went up to yeah the, uh, high school, basically there was nobody. It was, you're on your own, mate. <laughs> and what was it like being a teen? Um, it was difficult. It was difficult because the, the years of uh, 
having bleeds into different parts of my body, it, it just, I became more disabled. So by the time I was 11, my right elbow, which was, that was, a, and it became another target joint, it had actually self-fused, so I couldn't straighten my arm. So the name calling began there, really. Um, so it would be, because if you imagine standing with, you, with your arm, but not straight, mm -hmm. it, it looks like you're standing as, um, as John Inman used to stand, you know, with like a teapot. Yeah. And so they, they used to call me a puff and things like that right from then. Mm. Um, and then as I progressed through high school, um, my my left knee uh, was de was deteriorating rapidly. So I spent more time on crutches. And the the worst thing, I mean, it was truly, truly, uh, I hated it. Um, I'd rather be in hospital than go to school, was that... The, the hospital gave my my mum and dad um, a pushchair, oh. so there there I was. It was a, but a, not a baby buggy, but for older children. So yeah. there I was at sort of thirteen, fourteen, being pushed to school in a baby buggy with my crutches between my legs. So when I got to school, I then had to walk around or go around the school on crutches during the day, and mum would be there to pick me up with this baby buggy at the end of the school. So you can imagine the. Imagine the kids, they just had a field day with it. They'd Absolutely. open the door as you were walking through and slam it when you were halfway through, kick your crutches away. And I mean, turning up in a baby buggy, it was, oh, it was mortalising. It was That's, awful. Yeah. I mean, and by this time you would have had less of a, less people that, that, that were with you from the start, I take it, in high school. Yeah. Yeah. So more on your own. Yes. And of course, the other elephant in the room uh, by the time I got to high school, the the AIDS crisis was already hitting. Mm. So you had the added, the added fear and the added pressure and mm -hmm. uh, of of AIDS, which, as a haemophiliac, flagged up um, as one of the at risk groups. So it just it made it made really then things even that the, the bullying and the intimidation got worse because, of course, it was there I was with my broken arm. Yeah. Uh, with They were already calling me a puff, so, of course, it was already going to die of AIDS and, and, and all the, oh. the, the, the name-calling things. Um, yeah, it, 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 got, it got worse. Did you have to have that conversation with somebody then, um, your mum or a doctor, or, uh, that, that told you you were more at risk or that... The AIDS was was could be there for you, that sort of thing. No, so where did you? There was that? no warning. There was no warning. Um, uh, now might be a good time to explain with uh, mm -hmm. the, the actual treatment. So yeah. what they what they did to make um, to make the facturate the bit that my body doesn't produce, mm. they take a pint of blood. They would put it through a process called fractionation, mm -hmm. and basically what that is, they put it into like this uh, vat. And it would be spun around at high speed and all of the different elements that make up your blood, they were then able to extract. So they would spin the blood, take extract the facturate. That then uh, made uh, um, the old treatment was called cryoprecipitate. And it was a, a this is almost like a big bag that you had to stick a needle in. It was And it was frozen. So you'd have to thaw it out 
and then it had to be administered slowly. Then along came this product called Factor 8 Concentrates. And basically what they did was where cryoprecipitate may have been been made up with five, six people's blood, that was it, it was very small donors. When they made Factor 8, we're talking up to 20, 30,000 donations. So if you can imagine, you've got 30,000, sometimes I think it was even higher. In in America, they used higher as well. Um, So if you've got 30,000 different people's blood all going into a huge vat, all being mixed together, and then they take off the elements, so they took off the factor eight, if you had somebody with an infection in it, every single bottle that you produced then was infectious. So that was then shipped all over the world. And um, they knew that there was hepatitis uh, because hepatitis B was really common in haemophilia. And from friends I've spoken to who did go to the special schools, um, predominantly Lord Mayor Trelaws in Hampshire, um, it was it was actually sort of the running joke that who's turned yellow today, and they would have they would have chronic hepatitis infection, be bright yellow, um, spend time in the the medical wing, and then when they felt better, they would go back into the school. Um, so it was it was known, and within the medical profession, it was just something that haemophiliacs would have to get used to living with he- hepatitis B. Um, so the treatment they were giving us, they realised that they could... We're talking big money, Richard. I mean, we're, um, they in the 1970s, there was a documentary, World in Action, and they, called, uh, uh, they showed where they were sourcing the blood from. And I don't like the term because I think it's really derogatory, but in the 1970s, they called them skid row donors. So... Anybody who society or any people living on the edge of society, so yeah. for instance, you put homeless people, mm-hmm. um, prisoners, uh, prostitutes, people like I say that who are living just sort of off grid, yeah. but were desperate. So in America, they pay you for your blood. Mm-hmm. Where where here, you go to a donation centre and you volunteer to give your blood. You you give your blood and then you get a cup of tea and a biscuit. There. They would walk in, donate their blood, or give their blood, but they would be paid for it. So it opened the door for these very people who were desperate. If, if you haven't eaten, you're living on the streets, and you can go and give a pint of blood and get, you know, $20. Oh, yeah, it stands to reason who's, who is going to go. Yeah, and, and the, other thing, the other thing they also did was they, they played on other people's kindness. So, for instance, they would... Uh, position the uh, transfusion trucks outside in San Francisco and in New York, they would position the trucks outside uh, bathhouses, saunas. Mm. So when the guys were coming out of the saunas, they would say to them, do you want to make a few dollars? But we're also doing research into hepatitis B and a vaccine Mm. because hepatitis B was also known to to be predominant in the gay community. Mm. Um, So You've got, in, you know, like I say, a strong community in San Francisco where they would want to do their bit for everybody else. They genuinely gave their blood thinking it was going to be 
to, for research. They made $20 uh, for, you know, doing their bit for the community. That blood was taken. They were using some of it for research, but the rest of it then went to make factor products. And where they may have paid that person $20, that pint of blood would then be sold on to the pharmaceutical companies for, say, $1,000. And they would then make the bottles of Factor 8 and each bottle would be sold for, say, $5,000 per bottle. Whoa. So they were making, they were literally making billions of dollars. Mm. Um, and so it was big money. And uh, in fact, they were harvesting, they, they, because they were making so much money and they knew how they could do it, uh, the pris there's a, a prison in Arkansas in the States, where they actually built a unit on the side of the prison. So the prisoners would go in, their blood would be taken, and the fractionation plant that was built beside the prison, their blood literally went straight into the vats to make Factor 8. So they made a production line of these blood products. And they, they didn't care if people were yellow or the, you know where these people were from, or they didn't care about their backgrounds. All they wanted was their blood so that they could sell it and make these, these uh, factor products that were then packaged and sent all around the world and straight into the veins of little boys like me. I was given factor eight for the first time in the middle of the night in 1977. Uh, there was no warnings, no, no nothing. It was done covertly because um, they they told my parents that cryo was going to be phased out and I would have to go on to American treatment. And my dad has a thing about Americans. He doesn't like Americans. So <laughs> he, he said no. Um, and he gave his firm order that uh, I was not to go... Uh, there was no American product to go anywhere near me. He wanted me to stay on the British cryoprecipitate. Uh, and then I had a nosebleed, uh, and it was uh, April 1977, in the middle of the night, as I say. Uh, the doctor came. The syringe, the treatment was already made up. I was given it, sent home. And then it wasn't until about a week or so later, I went up during the day... And when we saw them in the haemophilia department making up the treatment, mum questioned it and said, what's that? And she said, Mark's treatment. Mum said, no, he's on cryo. So she said, oh, no, he was swapped last week. Mm -hmm. So mum said, well, we told you not to. He, he was to stay on cryo. So she said, oh, well, there's no point in putting him back now. He's already made the change. So that was it. I, I was transferred onto the factor eight concentrates. Mm. And yeah, they said it would change our lives, and oh, it def definitely changed our lives. It made it did make things for some things. It made it actually easier because rather than if I had a bleed, like I said, in the middle of the night, where before it would be an ambulance up to London, yeah, this new treatment could be kept at home. So it was okay. in the fridge at home. So at two o'clock in the morning, Mum didn't have to go all the way to London with me in an ambulance. She'd go down into the kitchen, make up the injection, and either she would come to, to, to me in bed or I would go downstairs. Mum would administer the injection, the treatment, and then we all both, you know, both went back to bed. 
And how did, do you remember how you felt about the treatment then at that specific time, at that time? Yeah, it, it, it actually gave us, it, it gave us the opportunity to have a life. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I say, 1977, up until then, I'd spent so much time in hospital. It, you know, my education really suffered, um, but also as a family, it, it, my mum spent sometimes five days out of seven in the back of an ambulance to and from Great Ormond Street. Yeah. But when when factor eight concentrates came in, um, we for the first time we, we we actually went on holiday. I was the first boy in my school, junior school, to go on an aeroplane, huh. and mum and dad took us to Jersey. Um, and we had a, and even when we got to the airport, that, that's where my love for aeroplanes comes from. Yeah. Um, as well as my granddad, I used to sit in the back garden with my granddad and his binoculars, looking at the aeroplanes as they flew over going into Heathrow. <laughs> um, but we got to the airport, and because saying haemophilia, oh, we were taken through like like a VIP, and we were boarded on the aeroplane first, and we met the captain, and the cr- and the crew would come up and make a fuss of you, and. It, it was, it, yeah, it, thinking back, you know, some of those memories were absolutely brilliant. And the old propelled planes, it was, oh, it was just amazing. I so lo- hope. There was it. hope there. That sounds like, that sounds hopeful. Like, yeah, I'm on yeah. this new treatment and it's actually changed my life. Yes. And for the first time ever, we as a family could do something that was normal. Mm-hmm. But actually, like I say, we were doing these things that, that, that at that point in time, not every everybody wasn't doing so to go on an aeroplane was just fantastic plus also my grandparents they played a huge part in they understood that because i was losing out on my education at school all of the things i couldn't do as normal boys did they would try and make up for it so i would spend a lot of time in london with my pet my grandparents and they would say take me to all of the museums so I was I was learning from the museums and their wisdom and yeah I had I had a, a, a completely different education and upbringing than normal children because of the haemophilia and then this treatment enabled more of that to happen so you know it, it meant that rather than having to go to London and miss school the treatment was there if I needed an injection and I was at school mum would come to the school give me the treatment I would carry on with my schooling yeah so so life life changed you keep you keep saying um my family do you have brothers or sisters I've, I've got a brother yes older yeah younger? he's two two years younger than me okay sorry carry on yes it it it, it made it, it gave gave life a bit of a swerve um because like I say I, I it meant I could sort of then attend school better um, it still had, <laughs> it still had a bit of weirdness to it because the nosebleed, you see, hadn't stopped, and the way they used what the, what they used to do in the end was they, the way they would stop the nosebleeds from occurring, was that they would take you to the hospital and they would cauterize the inside of your nose, so the vessel that had burst and was causing the problem had to be cauterized, it had to be sealed, and when I first had it done, the way they did that was they would soak gauze in snake venom. Oh. 
stick the state the gauze up your nose to numb the inside of your nose but you had to stay in overnight in case you had anaphylactic shock you know snake venom all things yeah um so and then they'd get this huge long matchstick and a nurse would hold your head and then they'd burn the inside of your nose um oh my god I mean, again when we talk about torture that was traumatic yeah, it was yeah. horrific i bet truly horrific um then they they stopped using snake venom because of whatever reason it was outdated. Um, we live in the first world. <laughs> yeah, um, and they decided that they would use cocaine. Oh, okay. So they they could be eleven o'clock in the morning. You got cocaine stuffed up your nose. They'd burn the inside of your nose out, and then they'd send you back to school in the afternoon. Oh wow! <laughs> so what, Mark? Stop sniffing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It was just so bizarre. What did you do this morning? I had, had cocaine stuffed up my nose. You know, they burnt it, and here I am listening about history. Um, it was it was just random things like that that you just you couldn't make up. Just out of naivety, what was the co- was the cocaine to numb the nose? Was it? Yes, the cocaine okay. took the place of the the, the, the snake, snake venom to numb it, and then they would cauterize the nose. And then uh, actually, uh, I've now heard. Uh, because my my connections within the haemophilia community and uh, again with advancements Mm -hmm. um, what they have to do now to cauterize uh, the the blood vessels in the nose for haemophiliacs is that they actually do it under general anesthetic because it's so traumatic and Mm -hmm. and psychologically damaging they they put the children out and they they then able they're able to go and do it slowly and and look and see if there's any areas that actually need to be done more or what but yeah it's uh because it's so traumatic they they do it under general anesthetic now but i just mm. had a nurse holding me head gritting your teeth giving you cocaine <laughs> on coke yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there any risk with needles uh when you say risk with, with, it, with it uh carrying on bleeding or anything like that once you've um, the needle yes so obviously the needle would go in and then the clotting agent would be administered. Mm. So when the needle came out, we have to apply pressure. Uh, where, where, say, a normal person, you just hold it for a moment or two. Yeah. It was, it for us, haemophiliacs, it, it's it's a good few minutes. You you hold it and get, apply good pressure. Mm. Um, so it, if I don't have the clotting agent, then it causes massive bruising. So uh, if you have, say, blood taken and you haven't had treatment, then it, it would cause massive bruising. But I, I, wherever I go, if I have to have blood, I, the way it's set up is that they take the blood first and then I administer my treatment so that I, it stops any bleeds. Um, How, you said before about your, um, your bullying at school. How severe was it? And um what was the overriding uh, the bigger fear for you the bullying or living with the the fear of of bleeding to death because the the bleeding i couldn't control the Mm. bleeding and i don't i don't want this to sound like in any way shape or form i i feel that i'm any better than anyone because i don't but because i was so different uh, I felt that I was living in another world and so I had this disconnect with school that I didn't belong 
I always felt like I didn't belong because I was so different. So these people, the kids that were calling the names, that were doing the bullying, that were kicking the crutches away, they, I believed they were doing it because I was just different. I was so different. And I was it was just an easy target. And the hardest part, the hardest part really was... I I managed to I managed to escape school as the AIDS crisis really was getting worse. Mm-hmm. Um, I left school in 1985, mm-hmm. but I know that some boys who were in school after 85 they had horrific bullying. Uh, like one of the one of the nicknames I know one of them was called was Lucas, so Lucas AIDS. Oh God! Um, yeah, it was it was horrible stuff like that. Or, or they they um, one of the, one of the names they were trying to stick with me uh, was uh, Freddie, because obviously Freddie Mercury. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean that that was sort of later. That was something I was called not at school. Mm. It uh, it was actually it was at a college I attended, and uh, yeah, that was dealt with. So it, that was a very brief very brief moment the uh, the 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 worst the worst element was you see because being on the factory concentrates which were coming over from america they were they were also using prisoners blood here as well yeah and 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 borstals so it's not like this is all down to the americans it isn't Mm. the the british the british were actually behind with the concentrates about three years so when they saw how much money could be made they jumped on the same bandwagon and it wasn't until 1984, so the AIDS crisis was already already well underway, that they were still using uh, prisons prisoners' blood here in the UK. Um, so uh, I, as I said to you earlier, that my knee, my left knee, was gradually deteriorating, yeah. and it got to the point where um, I was told, at the age of th- uh, 13. If I didn't have surgery on my knee, then I would be in a wheelchair by the time I was 21. And uh, life expectancy for a haemophiliac, when I was first diagnosed in 1972, was if you live long enough to see 21, you were lucky. So life expectancy was below 21. Cryoprecipitate helped that. And then the factor eight concentrates, they actually said that you could live a more normal life um so of course by the eight by the time i was 13 um the beginning of the 80s on these concentrates i i could have realistically been looking at living to be 40 50 maybe a bit older who knew um but there was again like you said before there was this hope and you could for the first time ever you could start making perhaps plans or dreams and and realistically thinking about what you wanted to do with your life, mm-hmm. who you were, all, all these things that people take for granted. Up until that point, you, you, you couldn't actually really think about it because that would be like saying to a baby, what car do you want to drive? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't make that choice because you couldn't think about learning to drive, and let yeah, alone a, a, a what car do you want. Yeah, that's a big part of identity. You know, as a kid, you're always asked what you want to do when you grow up. Do you want kids? And there's all these questions that, yeah, like you say, we all we all take for granted. You, yeah. You 
you had to dispel them and you you had to live every day as it came you you you, you tackled each day as it was it was a new day and you just dealt with or you faced what was going to happen that day yeah there was the dull boring times i mean but say i was going home after school and yes i might have to have an injection mm. and i'd rest up for the night because it might be an ankle that was playing up or my elbow or something like that watch telly bath bed get up for school the following day and it was it was pretty mundane some of it just just like every other other school child they going into school i i always i always had that in the back of my mind that going into school what was going to happen today um the same as you know people who are bullied they they there's that fear um but then like i said by the time i was 13 they said i needed this surgery yeah. so it was make the decision that obviously if for, i because of my passion for aeroplanes i had decided that i wanted to pursue a, a, a career in aviation i wanted to work for an airline so for me the thought of being in a wheelchair meant that i could never work for an airline so i had to have this surgery done for, for me to have any possible chance of working for an airline so for me, it was a bit of a no-brainer. 13 years old, yes, let's get this surgery done because there's aeroplanes to, to work with. So I had the surgery um, in 1984 and I spent six weeks in hospital. Uh, yeah, had to, had to learn how to walk and everything after it. Um, and then everything was going, everything, yeah, the, the surgery all went well. And it was as my mum and dad were wheeling me in the wheelchair through the haemophilia centre uh, waiting room because the car was parked outside the haemophilia centre. Um, to work in a haemophilia centre, you, 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 you have to have the uh, grade of a sister. So they're all uh, professional nurses who have achieved that sister uh, mm status um so their their knowledge and everything um and one of the haemophilia sisters popped up behind a hatch and just literally shouted across the waiting room mr and mrs ward do you want to know mark's hiv status results sorry mark's hiv results and mum and dad looked at each other as if to say like what I meant so they said yes and she said positive see you next time and that was it and mum and dad t took me out, put me in the car, took me home. And because of the having the surgery, uh, I had to go back every other day. So when we went back a couple of days later, we saw the consultant. And uh, that's when they put the fear into us because they told us that this was a need to know basis. Nobody needed to know. Tell, don't tell anybody because we can't guarantee your safety. Oh my. Uh, and mum said, what, 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 what do you mean, Can't, you know, safety? And then they told us that in America, the, the homes of little boys with haemophilia were being set on fire. Um, they were being shot at. They'd already been, we, they were, then of course, once, once somebody's told you something, it's, it's everywhere. And of course, AIDS was exploding. So it was on the screens of the, the 
the news every night. It was on all the papers. So this was really ramping up. And we were seeing, we were seeing what was going on. Um, and there was a, 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 pol a policeman of all people. Uh, he pulled his children out of school because the haemophiliac went to the school and may have AIDS. So mum had to go up the school and speak to my headmaster um, and basically tell him that Mark's HIV positive. Uh, what do you want to do about it? Mark's education. And he, he actually was a really good man because he said, well, it's not a problem at the moment. It's not a problem for me. We need to keep assessing this. And obviously, if there is a complaint made, then we would need to address it from there. And Mark might have to leave the school for good. So having the surgery, going through all of that, going back into school. And of course, you've got all of the, the, the name calling and everything carried on. And then, of course, there was jibes about AIDS and everything. Mm -hmm. um, I say I felt lost. It's just an understatement. I, in some t sometimes it was like I was walking and everything around me was just stood still. And then other times it was like I was in the middle of a, a hurricane and everything around me was going mad. And you were how um, old at this point? 14. From 14 then to, to 16, of course, you, you, <laughs> you, that's when school's preparing you for the big wide world. And so you had to see a careers advisor and, oh, you had to choose what exams you were going to do. So if you, if you think about it, same as anybody, if you get told that you're going to die, because mm. life expectancy then was cut to, you probably won't live long enough to leave school. I was gonna just going to ask that. Were you told... It was you won't live. You've got a death sentence, or, or... yeah, if you're lucky, three years. Oh, if oh. you're lucky, but of course the thing was that because it was in the treatment, they I've never actually been told. I I I don't know when I was actually infected. So I was told in 1984, mm -hmm. but they believe I was infected in 1982. So I'd already lost two years before I even knew. So that's why they said for me three years if you're lucky mm -hmm. um so choosing <laughs> choosing your exams what you want to do for your career when you've been told that well you ain't gonna live it, it just seemed worth it what's the point um yeah did nothing but nothing I, mattered I, I guess nothing really really mattered it didn't but then the, the bizarre thing and it, this is the strength of children I mean, people underestimate children so so much children have this resilience and because because you've been born with something it's all you've ever known you can't evaluate what it would be without that so really it would be like like i said to you earlier that well this week i nearly bled to death from a nosebleed another week i've had cocaine stuffed up my nose or snake venom and here it was okay so you've got hiv you're gonna die yeah and and it was almost you just carried on because that's way, what that's you'd always done. Sad. In a way, um, you know, I'm 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 hearing a very resilient person, obviously, and, and and the resilience is building up and building up. But the fact that you had to be that resilient at fourteen is in itself really heartbreaking. Yeah, looking back at it now, it was. And there were there were times which I'll be completely honest with you. I actually said to my mum. What's the? I don't want to go to school today. What's what is what is the point? And that was the hardest thing. And and of course, as well, because you're at that age, you've got your hormones kicking in. Uh -huh. And 
whilst all this other stuff was going on with the snake venom, the cocaine and blah, 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 I knew that I was different again because I... I about that. I, well, I, I yeah. Um, the best sport for, for haemophiliac is swimming. So as a little boy, uh, mum and dad took me to a disabled swimming club. So I was a member of that for years. Mm. And I can remember being, you know, six, seven, eight. And whilst I was getting changed, I was watching the, the men in the changing rooms getting changed. And um, I knew that I liked then what I saw. Yeah. So, of course, when when AIDS hit and I was told that I had HIV, at the age of, I think it was 15, I asked one of my haemophilia nurses, were there many gay haemophiliacs? And she told me, no, there aren't any. And... Oh. Uh, and I said to her, I'm, I'm not sure if I might be. And she looked at me and she said, well, you do have HIV. Ooh. And it was, so it was, it was put across that, oh, it was because of HIV that I was feeling this way. Yeah. And then I asked one of my consultants how this had happened. How, how did, how did I get HIV then? And she said, oh, it's because of, um, the, because of the blood products, the way it was made, uh, the homose uh, homosexual's blood had been taken and it got into the treatment and then that's how it infected all the treatment and so the haemophiliacs got it. So they blamed the gay community for infecting the haemophiliacs and that oh was God. the narrative that they used. And when I said to her, are there any gay haemophiliacs? She said, no, there aren't any. Um, if there were, I'm sure they would find solace, uh, live, a, a solitary, live a solitary life and probably turn to faith. And it's just, even at, even at that age, you know, fifteen, mm. it didn't sit right with me because I thought, well, I'd I'd always felt this this way. I always knew that there was something else, but I couldn't quite, I didn't understand what it was because I was a child. So for them to say or imply that it was because I'd now been infected with HIV that I was having these gay thoughts, it it never it never felt right, and I didn't believe them. Uh, and I actually sat, <laughs> bizarrely enough, I sat my religious education uh, GCSE exam on my 16th birthday. I thought of all the things to do, you know, being told that you might not live long enough to leave school. And here I am doing an RE exam <laughs> on my 16th birthday. But So you turned to faith. I, well... <laughs> Yeah, I did the exam. I passed it, but that was it. It was oh, okay. it was a grade. Yeah, it was a grade. Um, but of course, when I when I saw the as I said, when I saw the careers advisor, it, he sat there and it, he he might as well have just told me what's the point. You know, you're wasting really? my time. Um, I said I want to work with airplanes. He said they won't look at anyone like you. Someone like you, sorry, they won't look at someone like you. Um, you, t you should get your head out the clouds and think about doing something like working in a shop. And I said, but I don't want to work in a shop. I want to work with aeroplanes. And he just rolled his eyes and it was just like, yeah, yeah whatever. So I left school in May of 1985 mm -hmm. uh, with some qualifications. So I didn't do too badly. Religious studies. Really, RE, one of them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... Uh, I then started applying for jobs and and uh, also at that point in time, Margaret Thatcher had bought in the youth training scheme, the YTS scheme. Mm -hmm. 
So some of the airlines were, had YTS schemes. So I applied to everybody. Uh, I had an interview with Britannia Airways at Luton Airport and I was offered a position. And then when I got home, I'd only been home about 10 minutes and somebody wanted to ask me some questions about haemophilia. I told them about the haemophilia and they said that unfortunately that I'd been given the wrong information and they'd oversubscribed, so I didn't have a position. Do you remember how that felt? Yeah, I was gutted because to be told that you've got, you know, somebody had actually said yes. Yeah. You know, th- 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 this, yeah, well, I say Britannia Airways, um, it was, hang on a minute, you just said yes to my dream. Mm. Um, so it, it, it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking because I I knew when they were asking me the questions about the haemophilia, I knew what was coming. And so when they said no, yeah, I was broken hearted, but I suppose in a way I didn't really expect anything else. Uh, And then I had a letter come through from British Airways who invited me for interview and tests at Heathrow. I went down to Heathrow and in the in the group that uh, sat the tests, um, I got 98%, so I just passed it with true flying colours. I could have probably done it stand on the head. Uh, and where they were saying some people had to go for one door, you were going home, and I went to boot camp. <laughs> uh, I was going to judges' houses. Um, I went in at an interview with the HR manager uh, she was concerned about the travelling from Hertfordshire to Heathrow each day. So I said, <laughs> I said to her, did Gatwick Airport have a YTS scheme? Because my nan lived by Gatwick. And she didn't. She lived in Surrey. But <laughs> <laughs> I blagged that. Um, so she said, yes, they, they, they did. And because of the results that I'd got and everything with the interview went well, she would pass my file down to Gatwick uh wow and so i had an interview arranged at gatwick again i had to sit a test there which got 100 percent this time but it was it was so easy <laughs> it was name an airline that flies into gatwick and i just looked out the window um <laughs> <laughs> it was it, i knew i already knew i mean i answered the question then looked out the window but um yeah it was just a formality that i had to do I had the interview and I was offered the position straight away. And in fact, the my, the person who became my boss, I'm still friends with today. I love her to bits. And her name is Trisha Herco. She just was a, is a beautiful lady and she supported me so much. She phoned Heathrow and she'd reached her quota of 12 people. And she said to Heathrow that she wanted to take me on. And they changed the rules, and I was number 13. They created a post for me. Um, Beautiful. 13's always been my lucky number. But, yeah, she wanted me so much, they created the post. And so I joined the YTS with the world's favourite airline. And uh, at the end of my first year, they changed the rules to do it, to extend it so I could have two years. And actually, it was... I came up to my 18th birthday and I was offered a temporary position in flight inquiries so I was actually taken on properly by the airline Mm -hmm. Um, and I was made permanent within a year and as luck happened the merger between British Airways and British Caledonian was all happening and because there were so many people leaving and so many changes I was taken on permanent 
So my my career just blossomed. It took just off. Really, literally took <laughs> off. Yeah, it took off. And the first time, the first time I flew on a, a 747 to Australia, I stepped off the aircraft in Sydney and basically stuck two fingers up in the air and told all those that had uh, doubted me, you, this is where I am. Look at me now. And I was living my dreams. Okay, you got me now. Sorry, I didn't mean to make <laughs> you cry. But don't apologise. But well, the, the, the first, the first, the first flight I actually worked on was uh, with Trisha. She arranged it so that we flew from Gatwick to Toronto, and we had five days in Toronto, and then we flew back. Uh, we flew, flew back at Gatwick. We had the charter section of British Airways, which was called British Air Tours. So we flew out of Gatwick on British Air Tours, and I worked that flight. And then when we came back on British Airways into Heathrow, I worked that flight so we could see the difference. And so I walked across the Atlantic there and back. And to actually be able to say to a real life passenger on a jumbo jet, would you like chicken or beef? I do. I just knew I'd made it. I, I could have screamed up and down that aisle because I'd said it, those magic words, chicken or beef. And... Yeah, it was just amazing. It it really was, and I I never wanted to look back. But of course, I was I was keeping this dark secret because as my career was ex- as going going along, there I was literally going you know up up. Yeah. And the hospital were telling me you're dying. You're still going to die of AIDS. You're still going to die of AIDS. Yeah. And it was just this constant bit 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 bit. You're going to die. Going to die. Going to die. So everything that you did, every beautiful place that I went to was always tinged with sadness because all I wanted to do was stand and look at this beautiful sunset in the Caribbean or wherever it be. And I wanted to look at that with somebody special, but I also wondered, will I ever see this again? And and that's the awful bit that's always stayed with me. And it, even to this day... When I go on an aeroplane, when those wheels leave the runway and I take flight once more, I never know if it's going to be my last flight. And I know that's I know it's silly because my medication and you know life expectancy and everything has changed so much that we've we've got hope and 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 we can think about a future yeah. despite COVID. <laughs> but it, it's still there. It will always haunt me that this this darkness is there. The recent thing, um, I can't even speak, you've got me. The recent <laughs> Russell T. Davis thing, uh, it's a sin. Yeah. Um, the importance of that show, I just, it opened so many people's eyes to something that you were already, that you'd been living since you were 14. Yeah. Oh, uh, I, Richard, I, I've said so many times over the years to different people, I wish, I wish I could show you inside my head so you could see what life was like or what how things were and watching it's a sin it was just like russell t davis had done exactly that he'd crawled inside my head and shown you it i mean the the scene i mean i, I cried every episode which yeah. you know it, because i could feel things it, there's one scene where he runs into the middle of the dance floor in heaven mm. and i could smell heaven 
because I've actually stood on that dance floor. I, it, I, I'm not sure if it was a real heaven, but it, it I've was, stood it in the middle. It looked like a real heaven, didn't it? It did, yeah. So, but I've stood on the dance floor in heaven, and the smells of the club and the people and everything in there, I could smell it, I could feel it. So we should just I, say, actually, to anyone that's listening to this, Heaven's a nightclub. We're not actually talking about heaven. No, just, the world famous people heaven. that don't know. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was the first. It was the first um, big gay nightclub in in London. Um, Massive, yeah. And, and yeah, so Heaven has a huge, huge place in uh, gay history in in, mm. in in London and the UK. Um, and uh, yes, it was called. I think it was called a discotheque when it first started. <laughs> um, but yes, I, I. So the memories that that brought back of people and as I said the feelings and smells and things but even to the point where towards the end of the series where um he he cuddles his mum on the bed after saying sorry oh yeah I've I've done that because you see as as my health deteriorated then things started to creep in um I I, I actually was on the M25 because they were doing roadworks, I was stationary and all I heard was this screech of brakes and I looked up and I saw a car as, as it hit me and it, uh, I had to be cut out of the wreckage and the police, it's like the firemen who cut me out said to me that because my car was a new or newer, bigger car, that's what saved my life because I, I had a Ford Granada. Um, yeah. The back doors came over the front. It split the floor. I mean, it was it was oh. just written off. It was horrific. Um, and as soon as I, as soon as I stepped out, I said to him, "I'm a severe haemophiliac," and this bloke's face just dropped. Oh. And uh, anyway, the the shock of that, I was taken to hospital, and I was I, I was all right. They gave me treatment, but then I had bleeds in my wrists, my ankles, my back because where I was sitting holding the steering wheel and my foot on the brake, uh -huh. the, the impact caused bleeding throughout my body. Yeah. So um, that I was allowed to go home, but I had to be on prophylactic treatment. So I had to give myself treatment every 12 hours. Um, and then I had to go back to the hospital every sort of two days. I got over that, but the shock, um, it impacted on my immune system. So I recovered from the crash and then in November of that year, uh, which was 1995, um, I collapsed and was rushed to hospital and I was diagnosed within the hour with uh, a, a virus called CMV, mm. which uh, if you remember again, it's a sin. Yeah. That's what little Colin died of, where it went to his brain, the, the CMV killed him. Wow. So, I was given basically days to live. Um, my parents said that they were going to take me home and the doctor said no. And I, <laughs> I thought my dad was going to pin her up against the wall. And, you know, he, sa he said, if my boy is going to die, then he's going to die at home with us. Uh, my mum's done my injections all my life. So if she can't connect a drip then it's a pretty poor do, but you better get the stuff because he's coming home regardless. Yeah. Uh, and she and the doctor said, you know he's going to die, don't you? And he said, yes, I do. So she went and got the stuff 
and I was allowed to go home, but on condition that I had to be taken up to the hospital every day. And by day three, they said that my CD4, which is your immune system, yeah. it had dropped to 0.002. So it was almost all gone. And it was full-blown AIDS. Those were the words used. Full-blown AIDS. Um, and she actually said, I'm surprised you've brought him in because we thought he would have died. <laughs> and then dad took me back home. And <laughs> the the treatment they gave me was this stuff called gancyclovir. And it could it had to be administered through a drip. And in my mum's living room, she's got, she's got a chandelier. A brass brass chandelier. So she'd she hooked she'd hook the drip on this chandelier and I would be sitting in the chair underneath it connected to this drip. And what they'd said was they were concerned and I, I my weight I went down to I think it was four and a half, five stone. Four four and a half stone. Um and they said that uh, the gancyclovir basically it would stop you from eating. So they were they were really concerned that it would my that now malnourishment would probably kill me i couldn't stop eating i could not get food in me quick enough and if, and we actually laugh about it now but i would say under that chandelier connected to the drip with a tray of chocolate eclairs and i would just sit and munch my way through these chocolate eclairs and when i went back to the hospital i'd put half a stone on in a week <laughs> And they couldn't believe it. They actually couldn't believe it. Uh, I, literally, I was having, say, roast dinner for uh, a roast dinner in the evening, yeah. what tea time, and then I'd have perhaps a curry. My dad would go and get me a curry, Chinese takeaway, in the evening. And then before I went to bed, or maybe if I woke up in the night, my mum would get up and make me a sandwich. I just couldn't stop eating. <laughs> Do you think that was you fighting? P possibly, yeah. I, I, possibly. It, it just felt like, because they'd said, well, you can't eat, I was going to prove them wrong. So I ate. <laughs> and I put weight on. Um, so, I mean, clearly, I I got over that. But because of that happening, British Airways then found out because I was off sick. They, they, wrote, to, uh, they wrote to my hospital and asked the question, did I have full-blown AIDS? Uh. Uh, which the hospital replied yes, and British Airways couldn't get rid of me quick enough. Then oh, uh, God. they they wouldn't allow me back at Gatwick because I wanted to return. When I felt better, I wanted to return to work. And we're talking 1996 now. This is yet yeah, 96. Yeah. Uh, they they wouldn't allow me back at Gatwick, and I spoke to the. Uh, I was working in World Cargo. And I spoke, I spoke to the cargo manager at Gatwick uh, because I actually I did get on all right with her. Um, I explained what had happened, that I'd been given the, the, you know, this treatment and it had the virus in. And mm -hmm. I I just wanted, I wanted to, all I wanted to do was work for, keep working for British Airways until I died. Um, so she, bless her heart, she actually allowed me to go in and work in admin uh, for four hours a day. So I was on light, light duties. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that was okay. I managed, to, I managed to do that for ooh, 
a good few months. I was still going backwards and forwards to the hospital, of course, um, monitored closely. Yeah. Uh, and then she she left Gatwick, and it was when she left Gatwick, this other person took over, and I was called into his office, and I was told that I should focus on my job more, and uh, he, he just wasn't happy. So he decided for me that... Um, I would be better at Heathrow. So I was sent to Heathrow, but they put me on 12-hour shifts. Mm. And within about, I think it was four months, three months maybe, of doing 12-hour shifts, I was back in hospital dying. Uh, and um, the CMV, the CMV had come back. So my right pupil in my right, uh, in my right eye, I couldn't see out of. It was like it was, you know, when you open your eyes underwater, it was like that looking out my right eye. So I, I couldn't drive or anything, obviously. Uh, and then whilst I was laying in the hospital bed, uh, my consultant came up and said, we've got to stop your treatment um, because uh, this particular tablet is causing crystallization behind the eye and it's people are having brain hemorrhages. And Obviously, with the haemophilia, there would be no survival chance. Yeah. So they stopped that. And that was the first time I actually saw somebody die, actually saw them die, because the man in the bed opposite was calling out and nobody was going near him. Nobody had been near him. And like we saw with It's a Sin, when, you know, the last episode where the the chap in the bed where nobody he had no visitors or anything. Yeah. It was calling out, and so I got out of bed. I've got out of bed, and I went over and I sat next to him, and I said, "Could I get him anything?" And and do you know what? Word for word, Richard, just like with Jill when she went in and said, "Hello, my name's Jill." I I went over and said, "Hello, my name's Mark. Can I get you anything?" And he smiled and he said, "No." He wanted a drink, and I said, "You were calling for the nurses." And he just said, I wanted to see someone. I just wanted to see someone. And so I sat next to him and held his hand and we talked. And it was we were talking about just everyday things, you know. And he told me about the job he'd done. And he was, he was an accountant. Mm. And then he died. And that was it. He just died. And I went and told one of the nurses... Her response was, thank you, you go back to your bed. And I pulled my curtains around because I didn't want to see them then. I, I heard the movement, but I didn't want to see any more. Mm -hmm. um, and, <laughs> and the angel in this story was my, was my nan, because I lived with my nan when I worked at Gatwick. Mm. And all of a sudden, my nan appeared through the curtains and said, hello, darling. Um, <laughs> And uh, I told her what had happened. We we both had a cry, mm. but um, yeah, she she made me feel better. Uh, and I, I, I obviously I couldn't wait to get out of there, um, but British Airways wouldn't let me back then. So I was given an ultimatum that I could take medical retirement, which meant I would receive a small pension, um, uh, or if I tried to go back to work, as soon as I went sick, they would terminate my contract. I'd be fired. 
and because of my love for British Airways, my, my dream, by taking medical retirement, I was still connected to them. I was still on the payroll. Um, so I medically retired. Uh, I, I thought that was it. My dream was over. Um, but uh, it wasn't. <laughs> When when I left when I left BA, I, I I had sort of I went through a phase where I'd be really ill, and then when I got over my illness, I did what everybody normally does, and I went and got another job. So I I, I worked in a bar, and then I worked in a as a receptionist in a management training centre. I worked for Thompson Holidays in the call centre, but in between each job, I would be critically ill, very, you know, being told again, oh, death is on the cards. So you uh, face death um, what, yearly, twice yeah, yearly. Yeah, almost almost yearly. It was uh, say, yeah, one job might last a year. The, mm. the Thompson holidays was a six month contract. I did the six month contract, but I was getting ill at the end of it, uh, so my contract wasn't renewed. So I would go then through a period of months where I was ill, yeah. recovery, then go and look for a job. Uh, when I say I work- face death as well, I should I should just point out, I know you've made it clear, but just to make it more clear, you were told by medical professionals that you faced death. You're you dying, just, yeah. Yeah, you're not just, um, it's not just something that might be pie in the sky or maybe. You're told by medical professionals you're dying. Yeah. And that was at least yearly. Yeah, yeah. And you still, you found time to go and sit by that guy's bed and talk to him. And you said your nan was the angel of that story. Yeah, because my nan, my nan came to me. I know, but what I was, about I you? was able to, I was able to be there for, for that man. Absolutely. I don't, I don't like, I don't like to go back and disturb the timeline, but it wasn't the first time that that had happened. Where, as an adult, when you actually, there I was talking to this person who then just, as I said, he just passed, but. Yeah. If I take you back to the the late 1970s, as the oldest on the ward in Great Ormond Street on one one occasion, uh, if you were the oldest child on the ward, you got certain perks, like you were able to watch the portable telly for an hour longer. Whilst all the other little toddlers went to bed, you could stay a bit, you had a bit longer to watch the telly. And I was watching the TV and I actually was allowed to watch Top of the Pops. So I was watching Top of the Pops and there was a baby crying. And I don't know, Richard, I don't know why, but this baby's cry just didn't seem right. You know, you, you hear a baby crying, oh, some people say he's hungry mm. uh, or he does, you know, needs a nappy change. There was something about this baby's cry that I just couldn't, I it just, I don't know, it was there, I could hear it in my head. Mm. Um and when the nurse appeared, I said to her, that, that baby's been crying so long, can I give him a cuddle? And she said, no. I said, oh, please listen to him. I said, he sounds so frightened, so lonely, just a, just a little cuddle. So she said, you can't do that, Mark. I said, why not? So she said, because he's crying. I said, well, yeah, because he's crying, please let me give him a cuddle. She said, five minutes. So she bolstered me up with all these pillows Went and got this tiny little baby, put him in my arms, and yeah, he carried on crying. So she said, five minutes, I'm coming back. So I said, all right. 
So I carried on watching Top of the Pops and I'm speaking to him and saying, hello, we're not like you do baby things and pulling and, faces. And you would be how old? Uh, I was about 10, okay. 9, 10. Yeah. 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 And uh, so this would have been 79, 80. Mm. Uh, so anyway, and then because of talking to him, yeah, it, it calmed down. He, the crying stopped and he gurgled and made baby noises like like they do. Um and I just carried on watching the telly. And it got dark. And because the baby had stopped crying and, you know, he was he was there and I'm rocking him and still speaking to him as I'm talking about top of the pops and things. And then the nurse appeared, realised that because the baby had stopped crying she'd forgotten about him, came and grabbed him, turned the telly off and said, You bed now and uh then all hell broke loose and there was people running around everywhere and the curtains were pulled round yeah. um and i went to sl- i went to sleep because there was always like i said to you there was always things happening mm-hmm. and when she came on duty the following day she came and sat on my bed and she said to me do you know what happened yesterday and i said i think i do and she said to me she said to me, what I want you to remember, Mark, is when that little boy went to heaven, he was in the arms of somebody who cared about him. And I i never even knew his name, but I've carried him in my heart all the way through. So on this journey, I've never been battling just for me to save Mark Ward's life. I've always been battling having him in, in my heart. And as I've learnt more, all the other haemophiliac little boys as well, they're all here i hold them all in my side in in my heart and that's why i that's why i fight and that's why i do what i do because they never got a chance to do it so i've i need to now live my life to the best and the maximum because i'm living it for theirs as well so when that when that man when that man died in the royal free yeah it it was horrible and I believed that I had seen my fate, but I still hadn't really given up. And as I said, I went on to have these other jobs. And actually, um, in the year 2000, I went back, I, went, I actually went to Birmingham Airport and uh, I became a passenger service agent. And within six months, I became supervisor, I was taken on permanent. I stood up as duty manager uh, so doing all the check-in stuff and the, the boarding the flights and meeting the flights. And once again, although I wasn't actually flying around working on aeroplanes, I, I was working with aeroplanes. Mm-hmm. So I was still back living my dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and what I used to do was, uh, if it was really busy, I'd jump on and open up an extra check-in desk and help people out. And I was on a checking desk one afternoon and I collapsed across my desk. And as luck happened again, there's a lot of luck here, you know, Richard. As, as luck happened, where I collapsed, I fell sideways and there was a woman at my checking desk. And as I passed out, I remember hearing her words saying, you're drunk. But again, like in the movies, it echoed. So I heard this, you're drunk, 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 drunk. And as I went over, and then the next thing I knew, I woke up 
and I was in the back of an ambulance and then I woke up in a hospital bed connected to all these drips and all these machines and things. Um, and I got told that I was going for a scan because um, they weren't sure, they weren't sure um, if there was something wrong with my brain. Um, they scanned me um, and they, when they scanned, after they'd scanned me, I had a stroke. I couldn't, I couldn't use my left arm. Um, and obviously again, with the haemophilia, that the bleeding in the brain is what caused the, the damage. Um, and uh, they diagnosed me with this condition again that was related to AIDS. Um, yeah. Sorry, I actually got that confused. I was, when I was diagnosed in 95, I had CMV. And in 2000, uh, um, 2002, they diagnosed me with what little Colin died of, JC virus. Yeah. Uh, don't ask me to say the proper medical name because I can't, but it's, it's uh, MAI. Uh, but it was known as JC virus, an opportunistic infection. But that where they scanned me, there was a lesion on my brain. This lump had suddenly appeared and it was that that caused the stroke, the bleeding in the brain. And the doctor... My mum was sat beside me and the doctor said that uh, you need to go home, get your affairs in order. You've got weeks, not months, and there's nothing we can do. Um, this will spread across your brain like a cobweb. And as it spreads across the brain, it shuts that part of the brain down. So we can't tell for sure how long you've got to live. And we can't tell what path it will take because it's how it actually spreads. Everybody's different. So... When I was released, uh, discharged, mum came home and I sold my car. Um, my mum was bathing me, dressing me, feeding me. Um, like like the mums we saw on It's a Sin, she was absolute rock. Um, we we were preparing, we were preparing for me to to die. And when I retired from British Airways, I got a very small uh, lump sum. And I actually put that towards. Uh, it was a, it was part of a deposit that I actually I bought a house in Birmingham because working at Birmingham Airport, I bought a house with the help of um, a financial advisor uh, to get an interest-only mortgage. Mm -hmm. So I was able to buy this house because I thought that if I could live long enough, that when I died, I the house would go to my mum and dad. And they, whatever profit they got from the house, it would be something. And it was the only way that I could say thank you to everything that they'd done was just by leaving them this this house that would hopefully help them as they went into old age. Uh, so uh, for some reason, <laughs> for some reason, I don't know, maybe <laughs> same thing as before, but this lesion, I was having all these brain scans and... I must have been glowing in the dark, the amount of scans I had. Um, but for some reason, this lesion wasn't spreading. It just stayed put. So I was I was tested for epilepsy, and then I was put on this whole host of medications. Then 
my arm started going into spasms. So I got the use of my left arm back a bit and then it started flying around all over the place. So I, I had to tie a bandage to my left wrist that was tied around my waist so that my arm didn't keep flying up around in the air. Um, and my hand, would they called it crabbing, so that all the fingers would sort of go in and go through the spasm and then it would release. Uh, and then, well, things just sort of... I was left in this limbo, really, because they... Uh, I wasn't progressing or deteriorating like they had said. They didn't yeah. know why. And I would just sort of, each day was coming and going. And if that makes any sense, it was like no, nothing really was changing. I was just sort of stuck treading water that I wasn't getting better, but I wasn't getting worse. Um, and then at that point in time, I, I got a social worker called Mark Simmons who, for the Haemophilia Centre in Birmingham who was absolutely amazing and he he was he was brilliant and he said let's get you some benefits and if you if you die you haven't lost anything but if you don't die then you're going to get some financial support because I was just living literally just each day as it came it got me the benefits and it seemed like the medication was actually working and so <laughs> the first thing I said in 2003 I was a lot better a lot better feeling myself and I actually said to the hospital could I go away on holiday because my birthday was in April could I go away on holiday because you know I don't know if I'm going to get another chance again yeah. and they said that where where would I be going um my best friend at the time actually said that he'd never been to Grand Canaria so could we go because when I was working at BA we used to go down to Grand Canaria for long weekends or and party all weekend. So that's what we did. We flew out to Grand Canaria. Actually, it was two days after my birthday. And, yeah, had had the holiday there. Four, four days into the holiday, the 30th of April, 2003, the, the friend who I was with, he'd been stood up the night before. And I said, I was, we were walking across the main square in the Yumbo Centre. Yeah. And I said to, I said to him, Listen, darling, um, <laughs> listen, darling, there's, there's no point in getting upset because this is Grand Canaria. People come here for sun, fun <laughs> and bum. And it was very blasé and it was like, oh, you know, just get over yourself, girl. The Yombo Centre. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, and it was, uh, so I said to him, look, we, we will just enjoy ourselves. So we went to this bar called Centre Stage. And anyone who does listen to this who knows Centre Stage. I love it. Uh, you, yeah. Well, then you know, know what, you, you know what's coming. So there, there we were, and we were absolutely legless because we'd both hit, well, I'd hit the Bacardi and he'd, he'd hit the vodka hard. And the box of props came out. And, and anyone who's listening, this bar, they had a big television screen above the, the bar and he would play Video clips of musicals <laughs> and this props box everybody had to have a prop related to the musical that was currently playing and so at this particular point in the evening I was sat wearing a pink bonnet <laughs> banging a tambourine singing high on a hill was a lonely goat herder to the to the video of the puppet show in the sound of music not just 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 not just random singing it um, 
and just by chance, I sort of turned to my left and everybody sitting at the bar next to me, like you see in the movies, they all seemed like they sat back and stood at the end of the bar was this man under a spotlight lit up who was laughing. And so I stopped singing and I sort of screeched down the bar like an old fishwife. Oi, what you laughing at? And of course he couldn't hear me. So he walked walked down and as he, he said to me, what did you say? And he put his hand on my back. And Richard, I swear to you on my life, it was like I was electrocuted. And I just knew this man was someone special. And I said to him, I asked what you were, lo- were laughing at. And he just looked at this pink bonnet, <laughs> smiled, and I went, all right, don't answer that. <laughs> and I fell in love with him that minute. And, you know, from that minute onwards, I've loved him a little bit more every day. Oh, you've and, <laughs> and in 2012, we had a civil partnership. And, yeah, we've been together 18 years this April. And <sighs> he he truly is my rock. And... The activist in me has always been there. I've always been doing things, leading the way. But because everything he supports everything that I want to do. All right, if it's stupid, he'll tell me it's stupid, <laughs> which I need. But I'm able to go and do, and I'm able to go toe-to-toe with politicians and look them in the eyes. I'm able to do these things because I'm now doing this for those little boys in my heart but I'm now doing this for my husband. I'm doing this for us and our future. And he gives me the strength to do that. He gives me the power to do that. And Inspirational. Yeah. Lo- lo- I mean, love is, so, love is so powerful. And, of course, the other thing that we haven't really, we've, we've touched on very, very briefly, is that whilst I was working at British Airways and th- I had my career, I also then found that, you know, my sexuality and everything, I came out and I was I was doing the clubbing in London and I actually worked on the door of G.A.Y. So my official title at G.A.Y. Really? was door hall. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. At, at what, what, what period of time? So uh, from about 1990, it was 1993 to five. And then obviously when I was really ill, uh, it impacted there. But then from 95, when I was, no, sorry, 96, when I was recovered, uh, yeah. I, I went back. So, and, and I actually left. I was, I was stood on the door the night when Princess Diana died. Oh. Um, and that was, I mean, that in itself, you know, in, in history is, is a huge oh, event. Well, but, of course, you would have still been awake then. What time is it? About three in the morning when it happened? Or Yes. Yeah. French, well, we, French we, we were open. We were open till six. Yeah. So it, it was... It was it was surreal because you were stood on the door of, of the biggest gay and lesbian club in the in the country. We had sort yeah. of, we could take sometimes five thousand people when they opened the downstairs up, yeah. and so you had all these people inside, and it just went through the place. And everybody, as they were leaving, was saying to us, "Is it true? Is it true?" And it was like, "Yeah, yeah." Oh, and uh, when we walked out, myself and and Carlo, who worked there with me, uh, we walked down. Compton Street, old Compton Street, mm. and there were people sitting on the on the pavements, and they were just saying, "You know, is it true?" And people were crying, and we got to we got to Compton's Cafe, as it was called then. Yeah. And normally they closed the doors to to clean the place before opening up, uh, but they they said to us, 
get come in and we sat in a corner a table at the corner in the corner and they gave us uh, a sandwich and a coffee uh and then i drove home to mum and dad's and i woke them up and i said uh princess the princess has died and they said who oh, said princess diana um and it was yes yeah, then of course that we went into the 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 national morning and everything but uh, on the day of a, a burial, I as I was coming, I was living in Birmingham then. I drove down from Birmingham, and actually, we all came to a standstill on the motorway and got out and stood as the hearse went past. Wow. And then I went into the club, and for the first time and the only time ever, Jeremy Joseph um, allowed Carlo and myself to leave the door, and the doors were closed, and we went and stood on the stage with him, and we had a minute silence for Princess Diana. What um, so that was very that was really sur you know, s s surreal because hearing just the fans, the air conditioning in this huge club. Uh, well, yeah, it was a th it's an old theatre, wasn't it? I, I always say it's the best club that I've ever been to in my life. It, yeah, it was beautiful because you could you could pick a spot and if you wanted to just sit there all on your own and mm. watch, you could. If yeah. you wanted to be in the heart of it, you could. And it was yeah, a lovely venue. Mm. Um, sadly, I mean they they demolished it when they did Tottenham Cross. Court Road. Yeah. It doesn't exist. But, yeah, so I stood on the door there in full drag. Um, we would, When we did uh, fundraisers, say, for um, HIV organisations, because it was so close to my heart, uh, I would do the door in drag then. and Because uh, that way nobody argues with a drag queen when you're, when you're rattling a, a, a charity tin. It's like, get your money in here, boy. Um, so and, and that that itself also led to some great friendships. It led to some fantastic memories, lots of laughter, lots of fun. Um, I met fabulous celebrities because my job was to go and see them at the back uh, when they arrived at the the entrance yeah. at the rear of the uh, building. Well, bring I stood them in there to meet Jerry at that door, Jerry Halliwell. <laughs> oh, was it you? Oh, yeah. yeah well, t Take take them in up the staircase to their dressing room. Ask them if they need anything or if they wanted anything. You got it for them. Go back to the front of house. And then when they were ready, to, when they were finishing their act, you were there for when they came off stage. Again, if they wanted anything, you got it for them. If it hadn't already been put in the dressing room at their request. And then again, go back to the front of house. Um, so, of course, the, 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 the people that, you, you spoke to had a, had a little sip of champagne with a fabulous Sonia and met uh, <laughs> wow. uh, one of the guys from Bros, Matt. I think it was Matt Goss who was in. Uh, they were with Sunita doing Grease in the, the Dominion Theatre yeah. at Tottenham Court Road. They were in that, so they came across and we we had a glass of champagne and I had to quickly neck it in case Jeremy Joseph caught me. <laughs> <laughs> Hard taskmaster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And when when you're running around in five inch stiletto heels. <laughs> dressed as a you know in top hat and tails it wasn't a good look if you got told off <laughs> oh, i remember you now <laughs> yeah it's me <laughs> oh my god what a life you've led i mean i have i, I, I have. just i mean did you never feel oh, I, I get the, i get the feeling that i know the answer to this but were you never raging full of rage full of anger no the anger the the anger the anger really no I, I it, it, there's there's been moments but who who was i actually going to get angry at yes the the, the doctors and and the actually, I mean, the, the, no not really because 
I didn't think you'd say yes. I, I mean, I, I've known you for 10 years this year. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and I just know you as this bundle of energy. And I don't think you're hiding anything necessarily. I mean, we all have our defence mechanisms, but I don't, I've never thought that you are anyone other than the person that you come across as being is is the most genuine loving lovely as a couple as well as a couple couple just that you could that anyone be could just hope to meet and i feel so blessed to know you i mean i've said it before and we go for a long period of time where we don't see each other we don't speak but i can speak to you and it just feels like it's been five minutes yeah true friendship I that's what that is love true friendship Every time I see anything on Facebook, Twitter, whatever, it gives me a glow. And when you said that you got that feeling when you first saw Richard, wow, I just, I, it's just, it's so heartwarming to think because like I say, you're the most gorgeous couple and, and I'm, I feel so blessed to know you. I really do. Thank you. I... Well, and, and, like I said, the, the strength Richard gives me, because now things have moved on and it appears, I mean, I, I can't preempt, There's a, I'm a core participant in the UK's biggest public inquiry, which is ongoing at the moment, which is the infected blood inquiry. So there is, we've been calling for a public inquiry into these infections through contaminated blood products for... About 30 years now mm -hmm. and so when I met Richard in 2003 with with the help of Mark Simmons my social worker it became clear that it was actually work that was killing me because you see I I throw myself into everything with 110 percent so I was working nearly killing myself somehow recovering and throwing myself back into a new job and then nearly killing myself again so it it was clear that if I I'd met Richard and if I gave up work uh I could dedicate myself to looking after myself and our relationship as that grew and progressed and of course then that's how I've become it was talking to friends I became more aware um of the contaminated blood scandal how had they if they'd have taken action I could have been spared, along with many other haemophiliacs around the world. Certainly, we could have missed AIDS. Mm -hmm. uh, but it wasn't just HIV, because, you see, when, when I was ill in 1995, they actually told me I'd also got hepatitis C. Yeah. And so there was liver damage. Um, and sadly, in the United Kingdom, the, the, there was... <clears throat> excuse me. There was just under 5,000 haemophiliacs it's, I think it's 4,800 something and nearly everyone was infected with hepatitis C from these Bloody blood hell. products and out of that 1,249 also got HIV um, out of the 1,249 there's just about 200 of us alive today and uh, the deaths from hepatitis C. We've we've lost over three thousand people. So we've we've had effectively a whole generation wiped out. Almost the entire community has has died. Um, and there's still 
haemophiliacs being born today. So it, it, we're not including the, the youngsters and the generations that came after me. But we've we've basically seen this this like with with AIDS in the gay community and then across the world, all communities, a generation has been lost. Um, and because potentially, if action had been taken, so many could be alive today. That's what this public inquiry is looking into. Um, and because of the because of the narrative that was used, it was because of the gay blood that infected us. I, as I said to you, I've it's never sat right with me. And as a as a proud, openly gay man, living with haemophilia, I in the haemophilia world, I could see there was no support information. There was this this belief that there were no gay haemophiliacs and I knew I wasn't the only one mm. and so I tried working with the haemophilia society at first to try and raise awareness and reach out to others and just to give some information or support because I didn't want anybody to feel so alone like I did yeah and just just by knowing there was somebody else out there that may give somebody hope that's all I wanted to do. And because of attitudes and homophobia, it, it, I got a little bit of support and then that support was pulled and, and uh, the whole thing apparently was, no, they, they didn't like the conversation. They didn't want to be seen as promoting homosexuality. So they, they dropped the, the project. So I, t I took it on and I created Hemosexual mm -hmm. in uh, 2013, uh, which is, yeah, raising HIV awareness and sexual health because we've now gone so far down the route with the uh, factor products for haemophilia that they now make synthetic treatment. So the risk of viruses has drastically reduced because this synthetic product doesn't use blood anymore. Wow. So for the children, the youngsters and young men who have only had synthetic products since the mid-90s, um, they've not thankfully been infected so then but they're not talking to them about the risks of hiv and and sexually transmitted diseases because they don't talk about sex um so that's where my work comes in now that i am trying to educate these generations of looking after their sexual health the same as everybody should yeah. uh you know getting hiv tested whether you know you think you should or not by having that test and getting it regularly tested it gives you just, you know what's going on with your body. And I've mm -hmm. said that you go for a haemophilia checkup every six months. So if you have a sexual health checkup at the same time, you know what's going on with every bit of your body. And you're taking responsibility for your care and your well-being um, and your safety as well as others. So if people want to get in touch, how can they, how can they do that? Would you like them to do that? Yes. Oh, yeah. Where but, can yeah. they visit? Yeah. Uh, so like most people, I'm across all the social media. So uh, on Twitter, uh, it's uh, Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Hemosexual. Um, I'm on Facebook, Hemosexual. LinkedIn uh, as, as Mark Anthony Ward, but uh, Hemosexual does come up. Uh, mm -hmm. You can just Google it. I have a website as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm on Instagram. I'm pretty visible um, and... Yes, Very even visible. on even on YouTube, uh, if uh, the, the the campaigning group I'm part of is Tainted Blood, 
it's called Tainted Blood. But if you if you go to the Tainted Blood YouTube site, you can put in Mark Ward and you can see all of the media I've been doing and everything as well there. Um, so uh, I, I've I've been involved with this campaign, the, the battle for justice, now for twenty uh, odd years, mm-hmm. uh, and hopefully this public inquiry will bring us the answers that we we want and need, so that we can live however long we've got left in in some form of peace. I, that's that's all I want is the answers and peace. I said it before. Um, I'll say it again, and I'll never stop saying it. You're an inspiration. You are, I said at the very start, a personal hero of mine. And I think it's the, just the, the love that I feel speaking to you. And that's love for your family, love for people that you didn't even know the names of, um, love for all the people around you. And, and I've, I've seen you on a holiday. Everyone wants to be with you too. (laughs) That's just, that just tells me that there's something bigger there. There's something you, you draw them you're just an amazing person you really are and i can't thank you enough for for joining me today and for sharing what you've shared it's been an absolute honor to listen i know that you probably told your story many times before but if you found some benefit in going through it today with me um i well, I, I hope you have um if you feel like you want to talk more after we stop recording then you've got my details and you're more than welcome to use them whenever you want thank you you no, took, do you look honestly, after yourself you. too stay safe as I said at the start if you'd like to get in touch or you need to reach out you can find me on twitter at richardsefton3 or if you need to 116123 is the number for the Samaritans I really hope you can join me again for a cuppa and a chat this has been State of Mind with Richard Sefton take care of yourselves and take care of each other <laughs>